Hi, I'm Megan Hillica, a grieving mother turned grief coach. I now support, guide, and offer tools to navigate the unthinkable of child loss to other moms who also know this pain. I help you go from empty, lost, and broken to learning to carry your grief and live alongside it. If there's one thing I want you to see, it's hope. Hope that there's life after loss. Hope that there's so much more for you and encouragement that you're normal. All of this is possible along with never forgetting or moving on from your baby or child. I'm holding on to hope for you until you are ready to hold it yourself. Welcome to Grieving Moms Podcast. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to share that tomorrow, um, June 3rd, is Jessica's birthday. Um, This is Nancy's daughter who is the guest today. And she wanted me to share a little bit about the silly socks that they, tradition that they do. Um, It has just started when Jessica was sick in the hospital and people around the world started to wear silly socks for Jessica as part of a Facebook group that they were in for congenital heart defects, um, people started to wear socks. First started with Christmas socks in Jessica's honor. And then as time went on, um, they started doing Valentine's socks, Easter socks, summer socks, polka dot socks, and toe socks all around the world um, in hopes that Jessica would meet the next holiday and the next. And then everybody started calling them silly socks. And so every year on Jessica's birthday and on her anniversary day, the Jensen's wear silly socks in Jessica's honor. They also usually have a Facebook event where people share photos of their silly socks in honor of Jessica and to show their love and support of Jessica and her family. Jessica's worst fear was that she would be forgotten. Wearing silly socks gives her family hope that she will see them again and know that she is loved and will never be forgotten. So please join Jessica's family in wearing silly socks tomorrow, June 3rd, on Jessica's birthday. Hello, welcome to another episode on Gravy Moms Podcast. Today I have my guest, Nancy Jensen. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on. Um, You originally reached out to talk about anticipatory grief. And I actually was very excited to have this conversation because... It is a very, um, it's a whole nother layer of grief and loss that I haven't really talked about yet on this podcast. And so I'm really excited to have you share your experience um, of what you know about anticipatory grief and what it's like to live for many years, like grieving, but you you hadn't lost your daughter yet, but you're still grieving so many layers. So can you start by sharing who you are and how you came to know grief? My husband and I met and got married really young. We were 20. We had a first baby at age 21. And then at 23, when my husband was still a student and working and I was working, we had our second baby and she was born with a lot of complex heart defects. And, you know, that mom feeling inside that you just know something's wrong she wasn't nursing right and stuff. I first thought, oh, I've already had a baby. Plus, I helped raise my younger siblings. I can do this. This is easy stuff. We'll just continue on with life. And I just had this feeling something's wrong. And so I took her in for her 
two-week checkup, and I had already taken her into the doctor three times because I knew something's wrong. The first thing this doctor said is, is she always so blue? I thought, oh, no. Well, she was in congestive heart failure so bad that they told us that if we hadn't brought her in that day, she wouldn't have survived the night. And so she was in ICU. And they were also telling us they could not see any way she was getting blood to her lungs. They were going to have to do surgery tonight or she could die. And then I think it was like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. They come up after doing a cardiac catheterization and saying, go home, get some rest. We're not doing surgery today. And we're like, but you said she could die. And they said, yeah, well, we found all these blood vessels that aren't supposed to be there, blah, blah, blah. Talking about it like we knew what the heck they were talking about. And um, they said, she's too sick. If we do surgery now, she probably wouldn't make it through surgery. And so every day for at least a week, they were like, well, we'll probably hold off till tomorrow. And then one day they just said, hey, guess what? Do you want to take her home? And we're like, no, no, (laughs) no. And they hadn't done any surgery up until that point. No, they hadn't done any surgery, but the medications that they had given her um, for the congestive heart failure was really helping. And they said, she's so little, we want to wait. And they were actually able to wait five months. And we jumped up and down for joy for every ounce she gained. Her heart was just, you know, she was in congestive heart failure and her heart just couldn't keep up. And she would feed 13, 14, 15 times a day around the clock because she could only take in like an ounce, an ounce and a half at a time before she would pass out and go to sleep because her heart was working so hard. So it was terrifying. I felt like I had lost my baby that I had carried for nine months and had at home for a while. And they gave me this time bomb, you know, and, and she was going to die too. Mm -hmm. And we also had a two-year-old son and uh, I had to quit my job. So we were living off of practically nothing. And it was, it was very scary, very stressful. So, yeah, yeah, that's how I first started this huge roller coaster of emotions. Yeah, that is, that is huge to be told that you don't know if your baby's going to make it in the next moments and just living in that state of fear and not knowing what's going to happen next. And I think that's like a huge thing with anticipatory grief is like you don't know what's going to happen next. And you don't know when, what is going to happen next. Right. And what was it like for you um, in your own personal experience when you were told that your baby's in heart failure and that she would need multiple heart surgeries? What was that day-to-day experience like for you? Well, at first I didn't trust myself because I did not see, I I did not recognize the signs that she was in congestive heart failure, number Mm -hmm. one. I had taken her in several times, but the people that had seen her also did not recognize the signs that she was in congestive heart failure. So I did not trust myself 
Mm-hmm. And I was terrified that I would do something wrong or I would miss something and she would die because of me. And I also felt guilty. She was later on, we found out that she had the George syndrome, uh, which is a chromosomal issue that often has heart defects with it. But, um, you know, we were the teaching hospital. So all the uh, the different doctors and the residents and, the, you know, everybody would come in and ask their questions. And, of course, the first questions, what did I do during my pregnancy? Did I smoke? Did I drink? Did I, you know, and I'm like, well, I took Tylenol, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I even gave up my Diet Coke because I didn't want my child to be, you know. But I felt this guilt. And I think that as mothers, we feel responsible for our children. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens. And I think that we feel this guilt that it had to have been my fault. And my baby's suffering. Or like in your case, my baby died because mm-hmm. maybe I didn't do something right. You know? Yeah. And so I had to learn how to deal with that. And, and how, then, did, how did you deal with that? Like, what, what was your way of kind of coping? Because that is a lot to, I, we put this on ourselves, we, you know, we're like, it was my fault. What did I do wrong? But then those doctors asking those kind of questions, I'm sure just brings it up more and more of like, well, was it my fault? What did I do wrong? And feeling so helpless. How did you navigate that? Well, Um, I have to say my faith. Mm -hmm. I, I was raised in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we have the belief system that we existed before we came to earth. And this life isn't the end. There is no end. We continue to learn and grow, but this life is the first time we have physical bodies and, the first time we can get married and have children of our own. And so I've always had that strong belief. I had trauma as a child. I had trauma as a young adult. My mom was sick. And like I said, I had to help raise my siblings because my mom was sick for a couple of years. And during that time, I was really testing my faith. And here we go again. Here's another huge test of my faith. And we hadn't been married that long. And it was a test of our marriage. And it was extremely difficult. But um, I just tried. I prayed. I went to church as much as I could. And I remember one time that I was sitting at church and I was holding Jessica and looking down at her. She was sleeping in my arms. And all of a sudden, I just had this overwhelming feeling coming over me that Jessica and I were very close before we came to earth, that we were best friends, and that she accepted this body, and I accepted to be her mom. And up until that point, I just felt like I'm not enough. This child deserves to have parents who at least understand how the heart is supposed to work. (laughs) <laughs> much less all the, all the things that were wrong with her heart and pulmonary arteries and everything. 
And so at that moment, I just felt this incredible love. And instead of being completely burdened with the weight of the responsibility of caring for her, I suddenly realized my father in heaven would not have given her to me if he hadn't already provided a way for me to do it. And he wouldn't have made sure that I had her in there in time before she died if she didn't have a special mission. And it's up to me. If this child has any chance at life at all, it's me. And so I just sat there with tears streaming down my face. And ever since then, I knew if Heavenly Father has enough faith in me, that I have to have enough faith in me. I need to trust those instincts. And I did take her in all those times because I had that instinct that something was wrong. So I have to trust that. And as time went on, I did learn to trust that. And I learned how to read Jessica better than anybody else because I was with her 24-7. And... um, There were times that we practically lived at the hospital. Any little cold, she would be in the hospital fighting for her life. And people from my church would take care of my son so that my husband could go to work and he could go to school. And we didn't have any insurance. So if he didn't work, he didn't get paid. Um, It was extremely stressful. And so I just one moment at a time sometimes. And there were times that I had to go home and leave her there because I had a two-year-old son that needed his mommy. And I became really good friends with the nurses at the hospital. And they would go home and get some rest, eat something. And they would always ask me, how are you doing, mama? You need to be sure and take care of yourself. And so it was hard having my family divided, but I would pray, Heavenly Father, please take care of your daughter, because I knew Jessica was his daughter first, because I can't be with her right now. And then the next day, I would get up, make sure my son was somewhere safe, you know, and then I would go and spend the day with the hospital with her. And um, so it was, it was a long process to really get my groove and then later on I would joke with my mom and others that well you know a lot of people wouldn't want my life but I'm going to keep it because at least this is my normal and this is what I know how to do well I just there's so many things I'm that are going through my mind as you're telling your story and talking about it. And one thing that's coming up is how amazing and helpful it is when you have a faith that you can know that this is what is supposed to be in my life. Like I can accept this, even though it's not always pain or not always easy. And that way you explained it is that, um, that I, you, you say Heavenly Father wouldn't give you this without also giving you the, the capacity to, 
to go deal with it and process it and handle it and really love her, you know, and, and take care of her and be her mom. And it's just so beautiful the way you explained it. Can you share a little bit about, because I think living in that state of stress and worry and your family split up and trying to be in many places at once and trying to care for a daughter who's very sick, um, how you're dealt with any anxiety that might have come up for you? Well, I don't know that I dealt with it really well. (laughs) (laughs) And I laugh because I'm like, can I remember that long ago? (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I was in constant state of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Which Um, is totally understandable. Like it, it makes sense. Right. With that. Well, and it wasn't just that. It was like every time I turned around, and I kept trying to stop turning around, <laughs> but there was something else wrong. Mm-hmm. And and so I had mentioned, and I won't go through absolutely every heart surgery because mm-hmm. she had um, five heart surgeries. And, um, you know, I thought the first time of handing my little teeny tiny baby over to the surgeons was difficult, but it became more and more difficult, especially Mm -hmm. since, well, her first surgery was when she was five months old and they had to place a shunt between her, for those who know, a pulmonary artery and, and right ventricle. So all her blood mixed, she had a great big ventricular septal defect, all the mixed blood went up through the aorta. Some of it got carried through these extra blood vessels that she had grown on her own out to her lungs. And some of it, the majority of it went to the body. So she never had enough oxygen in her blood. So she's always really blue and um, battling congestive heart failure. So they put in a shunt and that was supposed to hopefully get more blood to her lungs through the pulmonary arteries. And um, so I noticed that she seemed to be like having a seizure. And um, they came and sure enough, her pulse oxygen dropped way down into the 40s, which is extreme. I mean, stroke worthy. Um, and um, they they did a bunch of tests and things. And sure enough, she had had a blood clot during surgery, break off and go to the brain in the speech area of her brain. And she even had to relearn how to suck on a bottle. And her right side, which had been strong, was now her weak side. And so we did, we started um, OTPT speech, (laughs) occupational therapy, speech therapy, (laughs) physical therapy, sorry, from that day on. And we had a homebound teacher. And so we did therapy, a different type of therapy, two or three times a week um, that she wasn't in the hospital. And this piqued my interest. And I thought, wow, this is really cool that I can actually do something to help her. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I wasn't glad she had the stroke, but I was thinking, you know, if, if I had had a career and I'd known about this type of thing, wow, this is what I would want to do. It was amazing to work with her and work with them. And, and they would teach me how to do things. And I would do that with her on the days that they weren't there and in the hospital. Because mm-hmm. again, I was her only chance at having a life. Um, you know what, that, that is such a, a really um, weighty responsibility on you. Like when you have that, I, I think we all feel that for our children, but when your child has these things that you're dealing with on top of it and you put that on yourself of this is, this is her only chance at life you take a lot of that weight on you, right? Absolutely. It feels really, really heavy in the way of the responsibility. It was. It was. Can we go into um, when you talked about, earlier when we were talking, you had talked about how she went on hospice twice. Can you share a little bit about that and kind of your experience with that? So Jessica was 16 at the time in 2004 and um, still at the level of six, seven, eight-year-old. Her health was declining more and more and more. We had to um, have her go to school less days and for less time, arrange for the bus to pick her up, you know, later in the day and bring her home a little earlier because her stamina was waning by that time she was in a motorized wheelchair and on oxygen 24 7 the wheelchair was because she could walk across the room without getting very short of breath Mm -hmm. so there's no way she could walk around a school or anything so then in the middle of the night my husband and I had gone to bed and it was quiet and we heard her coughing we both sat up straight up in the bed and went running to her and she had coughed up some blood and we called and you know the paramedics and she did stop she she coughed up some blood for for a few minutes and then kind of stopped and she was like what is going on and we're like yeah and so they came and checked her out and she was breathing okay everything was fine and figured must have been blood going down the back of her throat so we let the doctors know the next day they all figured it was the same thing well more and more frequently this started happening until it was a daily occurrence and we were talking to the cardiology and the pulmonologist and everybody pediatrician nobody knew what was going on so the cardiologist finally said we need to put her in the hospital and figure out what's going on. And she had, they said it looked like um, charred glass in her lungs. It didn't show up on an x-ray. Every time they showed up, took her to an x-ray, it didn't show up that she had a mass of blood in her lungs. But it was because all these little blood vessels that came off her aorta that went to the um, lungs were bulging and bursting and bleeding into the lungs. 
and any one of those could be fatal. So they they ended up doing a both a bronchoscopy where they go inside and check out the lungs and a cardiac catheterization where they go in through the heart and put dye and find out where all the blood vessels are going. And so they said, there's nothing we can do. If we coil off these collaterals, which they actually did two of the larger ones, mm-hmm. we're going to cut off the main way that she get bl- gets blood to her lungs. And so they suggested hospice. So we went into hospice. Well, our hospice nurse and the social worker were amazing. Jessica didn't quite understand, but she did ask the pulmonary doctor, could I die from this? And that doctor kind of looked at Carl and I and then looked at her and she said, yes. And without missing a beat, she turns to daddy and says, now can I have a pet bunny? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She'd had a pet bunny that had died. And so we found someone who had a a, uh, dwarf rabbit and we had that dwarf rabbit for five years. But so anyway... (laughs) She didn't miss an opportunity, I tell you. Yeah. She's quite the character. <laughs> well, the the um, hospice nurse, after a couple of months, she said, you know what? Sometimes we have added morphine therapy. And I'm like, what's that? Well, so it's supposed to relax the um, blood vessels that go to the lungs helping them to open up a little more because those were extremely narrow and hopefully to prevent lung blades. So we started around this morphine therapy and within about four months, she had stopped having, she had stopped coughing at blood. And by six months, so she was in hospice for an entire year. They kicked her out. Mom. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. She still has a terminal illness. Yes, well, she's not going to die within the next six months, probably. So we can't keep you on anymore. And social work says, you've graduated. And I said, no. And she goes, do you ha- know how rare that is? I said, we haven't graduated. She's going to need hospice again. This was not. The triumph. They were taking away my support. And I was upset about it. Um, and so anyway, because of the morphine therapy, and we kept her on morphine, and later we found out she had ischemia of the bowels. And that's actually what happened is that her gut shut down because it didn't have enough blood getting to the, the gut. And what blood got there had very little oxygen in it. And so um, what happened was we didn't recognize those signs of malnourishment because she was in congestive heart failure and she was retaining a lot of fluid. And I kept telling the cardiologist she's in failure. Well, it's not in her ankles. She sits on her hospital bed all day. Of course, it's not going to pull in her ankles and her feet. Mm -hmm. Well, one day it did. And it was right before her 
22nd birthday. And um, we went to the hospital and they put her on um, IV Lasix and she lost so much weight then we could really see how malnourished she was. Mm -hmm. And um, they also said, we can see that we're, you're not getting enough pain control. And we had taken her to several pain doctors, but nobody wanted to give her more morphine or didn't know what to do with her. Um, this abdominal pain was so bad and she was suffering. And they just didn't understand. She's at you know, the end heart disease. Mm -hmm. And also the end of the ischemia bowels and her gut was shutting down. And so we uh, went into this, contacted this company who was a palliative care and hospice. So even if it didn't look like she was going to die within six months, um, she could still be in that program. And the palliative care part it was awesome. And you know what was so sad? And this company, they actually had a doctor come to the house. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't going to have to load up her wheelchair, drag her around and the oxygen, take her out and wear her out just to see the doctor. That's amazing because that's a huge thing for both of you. Yeah. And, and I, right. I had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis years before. And I was dealing with a lot of pain myself. And my husband was in a position by that time where he could just call and say, look, I need to help my wife take my daughter to the doctor. Mm -hmm. Because lifting the oxygen and dealing with the wheelchair on, on and off the wheelchair lift and all of that stuff just, you know, was too much for me. A hospice nurse would come at least twice a week. Within two months, her gut completely shut down and she couldn't eat. She went 64 days without being able to eat anything. And, you know, it seemed like she had this spirit about her, like, well, I, I'm not going to say that an angel was with her, but maybe there was constantly because she would wake up and she would throw it. Um, she could, she at the time could have ice chips and some soda pop. And that's all that she could take in and not very much of that even. So she was slowly, slowly dying. But when she would wake up and throw up, she's like, eh, I threw up. And not like when she before when it was a very traumatic experience for her to throw up. So I really feel that God was comforting her and comforting us. And I would invite people that I knew she would want to see or people that would want to see her one more time. And they would come over, you know, one or two people at a time and come in her little tiny room and visit with her. And she'd wake up and she'd visit with them and then she'd fall asleep and we'd go out in the family room and talk. And I knew that the job that I'd had, this was four months after she turned 22. I knew that the job I'd had for over 22 years was coming to an end. This job that I had worked for 24 years, I mean 24-7. 
And it was the most difficult job I could have ever had, but it was the most rewarding job I could have ever had. And my best friend was dying. We would spend time together at night after the boys went to bed when her anxieties would, would come up. And I would watch her little girl shows with her and we would talk and color pictures and do different things like that together. And those times I just cherish. Something that's coming up for me is when we are the whole subject of anticipatory grief, like you have had had times your whole life where you're, you know, okay, prepare yourself that she's dying right now and kind of worrying and wondering about that for so many years from when she was really little to her living 22 years old. Um, And I think sometimes we think that having that um, preparation in advance, like, okay, you'll be more prepared for death. But I, I wonder for you if it still felt like a shock. Like, was it still shocking when she actually died? Well, Megan, she had come so close to death so many times. I mean, she was even in hospice. But mm-hmm. um, we, we didn't really go into it. But her second surgery, she hemorrhaged for hours and hours and hours and hours. She wasn't mm-hmm. supposed to have made it through that surgery. And then she started hemorrhaging again four days later. And they said, come spend your last hours with her. I mean, we have been through the ringer. And we yeah. have emotionally at that time prepared. She is dying. We need to prepare to say goodbye. And every time I thought I'm going to have to pick out this little small casket tomorrow, the anxiety would come over me and I would stop and think, I can't think about that now. Mm-hmm. One moment at the time. Yeah. And that's how I did that. And of course, here at the very end, and we knew that there was no chance of her coming back from this. It still was a major shock. My mm-hmm. entire psyche, my soul, my spirit, you know, my whole body went into shock. Mm-hmm. I, I was already... And, and there were times I felt so guilty because I told my mom, I'm so tired. I don't know mm-hmm. how much longer I can do this. And as she got weaker, I had to do more lifting and, you know, stuff with her. And my mom says, I know, I know. But then the guilt, I don't want my daughter to die. That's mm-hmm. the only way this is going to be over for her and for me. And it got to the point where my husband and I, in our personal prayers, we or we'd pray together, not by her, but we would pray for God to release her so that she wouldn't suffer anymore. And we'd even talk to her, Jesse, if you see the light, you need to go to the light. No, I'm okay. I want to stay here with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it, it was a huge, huge shock. And at first it was just like going through the motions. 
But there was this feeling of relief, of relief for her that she was no longer in pain, that for the first time in her entire life, she could run, she could dance, she could sing out loud, she could do whatever she wanted to that she never could do on earth. And that was such relief. But as time went on, the permanence of her being gone really set in. And um, I'd find myself just walking around the house in a daze, not knowing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I may not have dealt with it in the best ways. I would, well, I'd always stayed up really late at night caring for her. So that was my schedule. And I'd get up after she was gone to get the boys off to school. But then I would have a nap. That way I didn't have to deal with being home alone while my husband was at work. And then I'd get up in time to get my boys and then I would be busy. So I would push some of that away. But there were times where I embraced my pain. I would go turn on my shower and I would just sob and sob and sob and pound on the shower walls. And I just let that out. But the way, the reason I say I embrace my pain is because I knew that the pain I felt was equal to the love I felt. Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing Winnie the Pooh when I say (laughs) how awesome it was to love someone that was so hard to say goodbye to. Yeah. How amazing it was to learn that kind of love, pure, unselfish love that God has for each of us. And it has brought me to understand how God feels about each one of us. And sometimes I've thought, what did I ever do to deserve such an incredible blessing to have her as my daughter, to have gone through these experiences, to have witnessed miracles? And I'm just grateful for each one. Sorry, I'm, I'm praying here. <laughs> you know what? I always tell people crying is welcome here. There's no shame in crying. That is what this podcast is about. That's what we say on our podcast too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. Crying is, is good. It's cleansing. It's, yeah. it is. And it's okay my daughter, to cry. My daughter, and, and this is how I say it. A wise person once told me, sometimes the tears just have to come out. Right, mommy? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is so special. Yeah. So I, I want to kind of talk about, because that, that shock, that I think sometimes when somebody's looking in from the outside, they think like, oh, well, you could prepare, you know, you could prepare for it, like you had time to say goodbye. And something I've just learned over talking to many people um, with grief and death is that there is no amount of preparation. Um, there's nothing that can prepare you for the finality, for death when it happens. There's just nothing, no, no matter if it's Mm-mm. 
um, known in advance or not. I think there's so much shock and to really hold space for that, that that is shocking, no matter how it happens or when it happens, it's very shocking to your body and your mind. And something I wanted to dive into too, because we talked about this before and you kind of brought it up, is that two things can be true at once. Like your whole life with Jessica, you had a lot of joyful moments. You had a lot of special moments with her. And you also had a lot of stressful moments and scary moments. Um, you know, like when she was here, you loved her and you also worried about her. And what is it like after a child who takes so much of your energy, your heart, your time that like taking care of her was your full-time job for 22 years when suddenly she's not there anymore. When your purpose in taking care of her is not there, what do you do? I, um, at first, like I said, I kind of slept. Mm -hmm. I, my body needed to heal from all that physical work that I did, you know? Um, Unfortunately, you know, this anticipatory grief, I have three sons. My oldest son had gotten married um, the year before she passed away. So she got to be in her brother's wedding. But the other two were younger. And my youngest was already having some health issues. And we thought part of it was stress. And he was just starting. He was just starting freshman in high school. And that's a lot of stress. And that was during the time when his sister couldn't eat and we knew she was dying and hospice was mm-hmm. in and talking with us. So, you know, it wasn't just me. It was yeah. everybody dealing with it in different ways. Yeah. And so I have never, and I, I'm confessing to you right now, since I'm signing up for your workshops, <laughs> <laughs> I have never been good about taking care of myself mm-hmm. I've always put everyone else first working with therapists with Jessica um, they would come for Jessica and the whole family so mm-hmm. I had learned a lot by then that these emotions are important mm-hmm. whatever emotions you're having none of them are good or bad they're all important I think I had posted something on Facebook about worrying about my identity when she was, you know, dying. Mm -hmm. And my son came to me. Well, he actually posted on Facebook and he came to me and he said, mom, you're my mom too. I don't know what I would do if you were my mom. And I just broke down and grabbed him, hugged him (laughs) and cried. Mm -hmm. And that made a huge difference to me because I wasn't just Jessica's mom. Yeah, I had to do a million more things for her than I did my sons. But I was there for them. And I love them every bit as much as I love my daughter. And it made me feel seen, feel Mm -hmm. like I still do have a place in this family an important part, an important role in this family. And so that really helped. That is something that is so hard when you have 
more than one child is like you're grieving the loss of your identity as that child's mom who died. And then you also have other kids. And I, I've talked with so many moms about um, that. It's not like you loved your child who died any more than your other kids. It's sometimes grief takes so much energy from you and that their loss takes so much energy from you that it's not that you don't love your other kids, but it just takes so much out of you. And so it's, how do you, you know, have that capacity and energy to like still love your kids and still be their mom, you know, and there's no shame in that, that trying to be their mom and also grieving because it's a struggle, but I love that for you. That was something that, that helped you. Yes. Yes, that helped. That helped me a lot. So I, you know what, we could talk for hours about this, because I think there's so much to your story. And I really, really appreciate you sharing and being so vulnerable and really just also being like, you know what, I don't have all the answers, because we don't always have all the answers. And we don't have it perfect. And our story is not perfect. And, and I love that you just are sharing what is true for you. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing your pain and Jessica and your story. And I want to go into the cultivating compassion questions that I ask at the end. Okay. Um, What is one thing that you could offer to someone who's struggling and feels really alone in their pain? Well, I'd offer friendship. And for me, it wasn't just the death of my daughter. It was, it started from the day she was diagnosed with the heart defects when she's two weeks old. Mm-hmm. I felt so alone. For many years, I felt so alone. And as her health declined and mine declined, my husband would take the boys to church. And I just didn't have the energy to go because I knew Jessica would keep me up all night the night before and the night after, and I would get, those were triggers for my migraines. And when I'd get sick, I had to hide it from her because then she would worry that mommy was going to, what's going to happen to mommy, you know? And so I just, I was homebound pretty much for years. There were occasions when I'd go scrapbooking or I'd go do something fun for me. I finally was doing something fun for me. What I have wanted to do since I have felt so alone, I don't want anybody else to feel that way. Mm -hmm. I want them to know you're not alone. There are many of us out here who feel the same thing. And you're not going crazy, no matter what it is you're feeling. You're not going crazy. You're not wrong. And the anger that you sometimes might feel is normal. Go with it. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What's one thing you've learned from going through this experience in your life? (laughs) Well, the first one is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty intense experience, right? (laughs) It, It is so intense. And I have been taught from the time I was a young child that We're here for experiences and to learn and grow. And it's through trials that we are going to learn and we're going to grow and we can either become stronger or we can become bitter. And that is our choice. 
That's our choice and what we do with that. Yeah, that is, it's, I, I completely agree with that, but it's such a hard thing when you are in the midst of deep grief. It is just, oh, the waves and the crashing and the pain. And when you feel like you're going through fire, it's like, what do you mean stronger? I feel broken. You know, like, how am I supposed to be stronger? Thank you so much for sharing, Nancy. I like I, I can't say how much I appreciate it. Can you share where people can connect with you and follow along on your journey? It is, and I'll give you the link later, but it's Are We Having Fun Yet? I'm the producer of Bereaved But Still Me podcast, and I've been on that program three times sharing our stories, and um, I'm work in different, you know, bereavement support groups. For coming on and sharing. I, I really appreciate it. I know it's not always easy and it can be hard to share. Oh, well, thank you so much. You are such a joy to talk to. If you like this podcast and have found it helpful, I want to invite you to come check out Grieving Moms Haven. This is my monthly community for grieving moms where you can learn positive coping mechanisms, find a safe space with others who understand, and learn lifelong skills that support you as you learn how to carry this weight of grief in your life. There are group coaching calls where we do guided meditations, tapping meditations, breath work, and just talk, knowing that everyone in the group is also walking the path of child loss. You can come check out Grieving Moms Haven at www.grievingmomshaven.com.